Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. George Orwell said that to see what's in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. That's even more true today in our 24-7 hypersonic world. The problems we face, the instantaneous decisions we have to make, seldom allow time for a 360-degree view. This is, in part, the essence of the Silicon Valley ethos, to peer around corners, to look at the world in different ways. Steve Jobs said that creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, Jobs said, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. How we see matters. How we view the world, our environment, and the things in it shape the impact we have on the world, as well as how we solve problems, big and small. My guest, Amy Herman, proposes a unique way of doing this, one that involves art and beauty to enhance what we see and how we think. Amy Herman is the founder and president of Art of Perception. She was the head of education at the Frick Collection, where she oversaw the museum's educational collaboration and community initiatives, and was also the director of educational development at WNET, the educational public television station serving New York and New Jersey. She's an art historian and attorney and has trained tens of thousands of professionals in how to see the world in a different way. It is my pleasure to welcome Amy Herman here to the program to talk about her new book, Fixed, How to Perfect the Art of Problem Solving. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. This notion that art could play a role in how we see the world, how we can approach problems. Talk a little bit about how that evolved for you. Well, I should start by redefining art because people think of art as something that hangs on a museum right. wall or a gallery wall or even in an artist's studio. And I'm using art in a very different way. I'm using it as a new set of data. Uh, I am a recovering attorney, uh, as you said in your introduction. I'm a recovering attorney and I'm an art historian. And I like to think that I took the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis, and combined them when I created this company 20 years ago. The idea, uh, the genesis of the idea came from Yale. They were doing a program where they took medical students out of the hospital, brought them to an art museum to teach them how to analyze works of art in the hopes that when they returned to the hospital, they'd be better observers of their patients. And I started a version of that program at the Frick Collection and in 2004, I realized it's not just medical students that need to see more effectively. And I expanded the program into law enforcement and the intelligence community. And it just mushroomed from there. And now I'm working with leaders across the professional spectrum to use art to enhance their observation perception and now problem solving skills. And talk a little bit about how problem solving and, and art, as you define it, where the nexus is. Well, I, I don't think I'm overreaching when I say that everything is broken right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are, we are living in a, in a surreal, unprecedented time in this country and in the world, in fact. And, you know, someone, I was talking with someone in the publishing industry about five years ago, and she asked this question. She said, why are all these people coming to you? You know, shock and trauma nurses and counterterrorism officials and FBI agents and emergency room doctors, what are they all looking for, for from you? And I said, well, let me ruminate on that. And I came back to her a day later and I realized everyone has a problem. Everyone has something that needs fixing. And I think the idea was, well, let's go talk to that woman, Amy Herman, who uses art to help us see differently. Maybe she can help us 
with problem solving as well. And the, the truth is because we're living in such, such an unprecedented time and everything's broken, yesterday's solutions are not gonna solve today's problems. So they're hoping that by looking at something different that may help them in refreshing their sense of critical inquiry, how are they asking questions and how are they solving problems? And the truth is at the risk of sharing a platitude, um, the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. And for most people, art is on the exit ramp of their comfort zone. How is, how is art, in, in the sense that you're talking about it, different from travel to strange places or new environments as a way to trigger seeing things differently? Well, art, the way we respond to looking at a work of art is different than other stimuli. It's different than nature and music and going to visit another city. It engages our brain in a way that nothing else does. And as a colleague of mine likes to say, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so when we're looking at a work of art, what I hope to do is engage people in an activity that they're not used to doing. And, and looking at art is very unique. You're looking at, a, at something that is not always objective and that is very evocative or provocative. And I think the, the greatest eye-opener is when two people look at the same painting and I ask them each to articulate what they see and they come up with such different versions of looking at the same thing that they, they must think to themselves or I say to them, if this is happening in front of a painting, what's happening in the conference room? What's happening at the crime scene? And what's happening in the operating room when we assume that we're all seeing things the same way? So looking at art engages our brain differently, and it enables us to communicate on a platform that's not threatening. I'm not challenging anybody on their professional qualifications when I ask them to describe a painting by Kandinsky or a sculpture by Rodin. I'm asking them merely to tell me what they see. And for some reason, it's not threatening, and it puts us all on a level playing field where we can communicate like no other place. And does sense of place matter? Does it matter where you're seeing that art? You know, it, it, it can, and it does. I, I'm a firm believer that when you change your environment, you change how you see things. You know, so, uh, you know, we're living in a virtual world now. We do everything by Zoom. And luckily for me, art translates to the screen very well. So I'm able to do this virtually, and I'm able to do this with PowerPoint. But there is nothing like seeing art in situ. When you are in a museum and you're looking at the frame and you're looking at the crowds, looking at the picture and you're looking at the pictures around it, because the truth is our whole world happens in context. Yes, we're working in silos now, but in a normal world or a new normal world, we have to process context and not just one thing. So I love looking at art in its original context. But when you can't, looking at it on screen is second best. And how much does the context, though, influence how you see it? I mean, you can look at a piece of art on Zoom and you come away with one set of ideas and impressions or looking at it in a museum and come away with an entirely different set. That's absolutely true. But isn't that true of everything we experience in the world? If you, I live in New York City, if I go into a, you know, a Chinese restaurant here in New York City and I have a meal in Chinatown, going to be very different from having a meal in Shanghai. You know, your, your environment affects things um, in ways we can't even imagine. And, it, you know, it's, it's just interesting to think about that context and how we see things. But 
that's something that I want to train our brains to be able to do, to understand that we are in different contexts and different places. I don't want to add to anybody's plate. Our plates are full enough. But by looking at works of art, we can train our brain to think differently and say, well, I'm here now. I'm looking at this now as opposed to looking at something alone and by myself. And when it comes to problem solving, you know, rarely do we have, let me go home and think about this for four hours by myself and I'll come up with a solution. No, sometimes you have to come up with a solution in 10 minutes. And so how do we process those distractions and how do we contextualize the world we're in to help us be more efficient in problem solving? Talk about what you've seen with respect to the cumulative effect of this, how it does begin to rewire the brain. Well, I'll give you an example. I was just telling someone this morning that uh, I walk, I trained a group of the FBI here. I'm in New York City, and this was a field office from outside of New York. They had come to New York for the day. I did a training session for them. And then a few months later, they invited me up to their FBI office. They wanted to share some photographs with me and teach me about firing a, a gun. You know, I have some interesting aspects of my job. And I walked into this very gray governmental office building and one of the agents across the room, big guy, bald, had a huge gun, you know, a, a weapon around his, in his belt. And he pointed across the room and he said, there's Amy Herman. She taught me to see my first Vermeer. I mean, here I was in this FBI office and this guy points to me and I thought, are you still thinking about that Vermeer? He said, absolutely, because it was the first time somebody taught me how to look for something that's not there. Because in this particular Vermeer, it's blank in the back. It has no background. And I said, I said to the group, well, you see what's going on in the foreground, but what's happening in the background? And I needed someone to say, there is nothing happening in the background. And the idea that this image of Vermeer stuck in his mind, associated with the concept, I need to remember what's not there. It was heartwarming, and it made me see this really does have an effect. And I'm not giving myself credit. I merely connect the dots. But... What's not news to anybody, art is powerful. And some of these images are indelible. And I believe that people are going to remember the concepts that I'm trying to teach because they have a visual image to go along with it. Well, it's not what Amy Herman said. It's the picture she showed me that went along with the concept. And, and all I'm doing, I recognize as an art historian that art is very powerful. I'm just channeling that power in a different direction to help people who don't look at art for a living think about it to help them do their work more effectively. What do we understand about how it triggers the imagination? Well, triggering the, imagi the imagination is a very subjective thing. And the truth is that art is subjective as well. And so when we, for that alone, we're able to separate. This is how I introduce the concept of bias. You know, don't tell me what you think. Tell me what you see. And art gives us the perfect vehicle to do that because your imagination can run wild when you're looking at a work of art. Well, I think she's depressed and she's talking to her brothers. You don't know that. You see a person in a painting who's talking to other people. And so I am there to cut that off and say, let's keep this to the objective. What do you notice? What do you observe? And how do you communicate that? And I'm not saying that your subjective impressions are not important, but I always remind my, my participants, say what you see before saying what you think because you have no idea where anybody else is in their head and what they're seeing. So let's all get on the same page about what we see and then talk about what we think. The imagination is a wonderful thing, but we have to rein it in for this program and say, you know, I'm recognizing that I'm going with my imagination here and I'm moving towards the subjective, but I need to establish the objective information first. 
An interesting experiment in all this, it seems to me, would be a work of art where we know or you know as an art historian what the history of it is, the way in which it was, the way in which that piece of art evolved, what the story was with respect to the artist when they created it, their state of mind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Information that an art historian might know about a particular work of art, and the degree to which somebody seeing it for the first time might capture some of that, some of that history without really knowing it. It's a great question, and. You know, I learned a phrase from a doctor with whom I was working on this program many years ago, and he said, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. When you see something that triggers a response in you, go with that gut response because you may really be onto something, but leave the door open that it might be a zebra. It might not be what you think it is. And the perfect example that I can give you is in my new book, Fixed, I open the book with a discussion of Jericho's painting, The Raft of the Medusa. And the raft of the Medusa is this harrowing, most people shudder when they think of that painting. It's the aftermath of a a raft that from a boat that's run aground and people have, you're seeing them on their last days. They've suffered starvation and dehydration and cannibalism. And you're seeing them the moment rescue is about to happen. Most people don't know the story of the raft of the Medusa. But when they look at the painting and they see these emaciated figures and they see people without hope and they're drifting, I want them to try to process what they're seeing, articulate all the details, the harrowing details, and then I tell them the story and they say, you see, I wasn't so far off. But the counterpoint to that is when you're looking at a work of art, I advocate, and I do this myself, when you're in a museum or a gallery, don't read the label first. Look at the work of art, rely on your inherent sense of observation because we all have one, and then read the label to see if your observations are in sync with what the label says. Because if you read the label first, you're going to look for what the label tells you to see. And I want people to rely on their own observation because you know what? An emergency on the street doesn't come with a wall label. Raising children doesn't come with a wall label. Most situations in our life don't come with a wall label label, and you have a very strong resource of observation that you should you should draw upon. Is the downside of this at all that it, it is a reminder, and you've touched on this, it is a reminder of how subjective so much in our life really is? It is, but I don't think it's really a bad thing to be reminded of how subjective a world we live in. I mean, look how divisive the world is right now. And so many of the things that we are arguing about and and just stuck on you know it's not really the substance of the issue it's about how we feel about certain things and we're digging our heels in and if each of us just steps back and says you know at once a day i ask my participants what is the issue here what is the problem and what is it we're trying to solve that's how i coined this term visual intelligence what does visual intelligence mean it means seeing what matters cutting through the noise We are barraged with visual and other kinds of information, a 24-hour news cycle, you know, Instagram, social media, emails, text. How do we get through all that to see what matters? And frequently, we have to put a lot of the subjective stuff aside and concentrate on articulating objectively what it is that's in front of us and what needs our attention. Of course, the corollary of that in this crazy world that we're living in, that, that you're correctly defining, is that some things are objective, that there are objective facts, that there are objective things, for example, that an artist may have had in mind 
that we know an artist may have had in mind when they created a work of art. And, and those things are factual regardless of how we might see it. That is correct. And I, I also find that people are so willing to interject the subjective where it's just not appropriate. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just so willing. And, and you know, my son, I, I learned so much of this through motherhood. You know, I've applied the art of perception and my looking at art to raising my son. And he would come home from school and he'd say, Mom, we have a problem. And my first question to him was, is anyone dying? And he'd say, no. And my response was, well, then we can try to fix it. You know, so, so it's about breaking things down. And one of the subchapters in my book is about breaking things down into digestible pieces. You know, we have these overarching, huge issues we're facing on every front, social, political, economic, you know, everything we're facing right now. And we can't begin to address them until we break them down into bite-sized pieces. And frequently that means moving the subjective out of our purview for a little while. Let's concentrate on the objective facts on which we have common ground. And then we get to the more difficult subjective issues. Is there a part of art that's a kind of escapism from, from reality in some respects? <laughs> I think it's the greatest escape. I mean, my, my best busman's holiday on a day off is to go to an art museum. It's my favorite thing to do. And, uh, it, you know, it goes back to what I said originally. I think the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. And art challenges us in the best possible way. It challenges us to look and think and process and we can do it by ourselves or we can do it with other people. But I also think it lays a really solid foundation and creates a template for looking at other things. And so it has this intrinsic value that we're not just escaping for our own enjoyment to go see some amazing Jasper Johns paintings at the Whitney this afternoon. But it's going to give us another lens through which we can apply to see the rest of our world. I wouldn't be in business if it didn't, <laughs> if it wasn't working. <laughs> and somehow... People embrace it because I'm going to use the fun word, the F word. It's fun. It's actually fun to look at art and think about using it in other contexts. Do other things do a similar thing? Do movies do a similar thing? Does theater do a similar thing? Does literature do a similar thing? I think it absolutely does. And people always ask me, well, do you use dance? Do you use video? Well, no, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I don't know that much about dance. I know that I enjoy it. And I know that when I need to get away from you know, everything, going to watch flamenco dancing is one of my favorite things in the world, but I'm not an expert in it. And I, I could not uh, create a guide to connect people from looking at flamenco dancing to applying it to a crime scene. I'm just not equipped to be able to do that. So as I said before, also, when you look at dance, when you listen to music, when you watch movies, you're engaging your brain, you're, you're uh, flexing your brain, you're uh, engaging in elasticity that I think can only help us. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So art is my passion. It's what I'm in, you know, I'm not an expert, but I'm, I'm schooled in how to look at art and different kinds of art. So I think we can use a lot of different kinds of external stimuli to help with this. But I've chosen art. Uh, it's because uh, it's what I know best and it's where my passion lies. What is the outer edge of that? Are there things that you want to explore, places you want to go with this that you haven't had the opportunity to yet? Absolutely. Uh, I, I read a lot of news every day. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there are some intractable dilemmas that we are facing now. There are some problems that just are not solved easily, and I really want to break them down and think about the process of looking at art. I'm always looking to expand it and apply it in in so many different disciplines. I mean, I've gotten calls from, 
you know, the Air Traffic Controllers Association and, and you know, different group beekeepers and prison wardens. And it's such a great intellectual challenge for me to think, well, how can we take looking at art to help this particular group solve its problems? And, you know, I have to stretch sometimes. I have to stretch the art. There are always areas, always problems that need addressing. As I said, our world is broken right now. And there are so many areas that need fixing. And I'm always looking. And I can't promise that I can, I can produce results because there are some disciplines that don't have answers. But if I can at least provide you know, uh, provide guideposts for people to get there. I can't lay in a, you know, I can't throw the anchor down yet, but if I can provide guideposts, I'm always willing and open to thinking about that. Has there been receptivity to this in places like Silicon Valley? There has been, absolutely. Because, you know, think about what a startup is. Just by the name of it, it's a startup. And you're trying new things. You're always trying to be on the cutting edge. You're always trying to be innovative. And one of the things that I advocate is you always need to bring the world into focus and look for new sources of light. It's the difference between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And it goes back to artist self-portraiture. Artists are always looking in the mirror. They're always trying to, you know, see what's there. And we need to do that as well. And for, for people in Silicon Valley, high-tech industries, new emerging industries, they have to look in the mirror every day and say, okay, what's working and what's not working? <laughs> you know, we have to think about what's not working, minimize it. And, but that takes real hard self-perception. And some people are not willing to do that. But uh, the idea of self-perception, looking in the mirror, and how artists create their work by constantly looking in the mirror, I think, again, it can provide a template for new and emerging industries. And finally, what have you learned about artists and about the creation of work as a result of this process? I've learned that for some artists, the process never ends. In my research, I found out that Leonardo da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa around with him constantly, constantly refining, reworking, and then he died. So it was finished, you know? And, and so what I want readers and listeners to understand, I think one of the biggest takeaways from my program and my books, what I hope it is, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Sometimes good is good enough. Let's do what we have to do to solve the problem and move on because to, to solve the overarching, you know, intractable dilemmas, yes, it's aspirational, but we can't always do that. So don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Let good be good enough when it has to be. Amy Herman, her book is Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Amy, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.